0: This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 23rd of July 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, the journalist Andrew Walker will be here to take us through the day's papers. Plus, we'll get an update from our team in Ukraine. And then, Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, will be telling us about some of the week's stranger news stories.
1: For we learned that certain ungrateful citizens of Wiltshire had entered in a local council scarecrow competition, a representation of Boris Johnson, and we learned that there had, as a consequence, been controversy.
0: That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24 with me, Georgina Godwin. First, a quick look at the day's headlines. Ukraine and Russia have signed agreements which will allow Kyiv to resume exports of grain through the Black Sea. The deal means that millions of tonnes of grain, which has been trapped since the Russian invasion, could soon leave Ukrainian ports. A jury has found Donald Trump's former aide, Steve Bannon, guilty on two counts of contempt of Congress. It's thought that Bannon was an unofficial adviser to Trump at the time of the Capitol Hill riots on the 6th of January 2021. He could now face a custodial sentence. And Cuba is to hold a referendum on the legalisation of same-sex marriage and civil unions. The new Families Code will be put to a national vote at the end of September after being debated in community meetings on the Caribbean island earlier this year. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now let's begin in Ukraine. Monocle's Carlotta Rebello is there and she joins me on the line. Carlotta, I understand a very interesting night for you.
2: Good morning, Georgina. Yes, indeed. We were woken up up in a rush uh, by uh, an air raid siren here in Kyiv. Not only the siren going on outside, but also an app that we have on our phones by recommendation of officials. So you have the siren outside, you have the phone going on and a call from hotel reception. Uh, advising us to go to the bomb shelter uh, in the basement. So along with uh, our other um, hotel guests, we ended in uh, a parking garage, converted now into a bomb shelter um, with some beds. And there was uh, a few desks there as well, If you, in case you needed to work, lots of water, plugs. And um, we ended up in total being there for around two hours. Um, we then found out, as of course we first rush uh, down to the uh, to the shelter and then you started looking online to see if you have more information and we then realised that it was an actual uh, air raid siren alert throughout the entire country so every oblast, every region uh, was on alert and it seems like Kiev was actually one of the last ones um, to um, uh, have this air raid siren um, thankfully no reports of any uh, missile hits here in the city But as we've seen this morning, um, Mikolayev has been uh, hit uh, overnight. So um, for us, uh, it was just the
0: inconvenience of going downstairs. So that is nothing by comparison. Mm, But it must have given you a pretty good insight into what Ukrainians are are, uh, suffering night after night.
2: Oh, absolutely, and we do rec- We had been commenting all week in a few of our reports how we were aware of our privilege. That until now, and we've been here for a week now. It took a week for us to hear the first air raid siren. Where even our colleagues, our photographer and our correspondent here, who we've been working with, were like before, telling us how before we arrived, it was almost every day. Um. Now, he, some people we spoke to over the week were saying that it was quite likely that there were no. Uh, Uh, threats and therefore no air raid sirens because this grain deal that we've just heard in the news from you was being negotiated and some even joked as soon as the deal is signed be ready for your first air raid siren. Well, the deal was signed yesterday and we had our first (laughs) air raid siren hours later. So it's not a joke. It seems very much like people here are very aware um, of
0: uh, how things work. Mm. Now, you've actually been travelling around and I know you've been to one of the places where some of the worst atrocities were committed.
2: Yes we were quite keen to travel to the cities around uh, Kiev to try and see for ourselves and uh, look as well at the state of rebuilding uh, we went uh, a couple of days ago to Bucha and Irpin these two cities that listeners might remember from seeing all over the news about the destruction about the mass graves that were found and we in Bucha we uh, met the deputy mayor who took us on a tour Um, of the city some of the sites that had been destroyed but also some of the places that have already been rebuilt and it's quite staggering when you're driving around and seeing these places you know a a theater burned to the ground with a hole in the ceiling that doesn't exist anymore um and no one was there when it was hit it was just hitting a a theater music venue for absolutely no apparent reason Um, we drove past this um, what was meant to be um, uh, quite a, a high-end uh, complex of uh, apartment blocks. Uh, Bucha and Irpin are more or less half an hour from Kiev, so it had become a suburb for the middle class who was looking for uh, better space in nature, still connected to the capital. It's There's a commuter train. It's quite easy to get to. So you can imagine how it can become a thriving suburb. And they had this project, if uh, I remember the name correctly, it's the Continent um, uh, Residential Buildings. And um, the Deputy mayor was telling us how, um, you know, Russians took over all the apartments, were even stealing um, appliances, kitchen appliances from people's homes, Um, a lot of destruction, Uh, the same with the supermarkets and a few of the warehouses. Um, But then you would drive through a street where there would be a pharmacy burned to the ground, the rubble still has to be cleared up. And next to it is a restaurant that is packed with people having fun and drinking a beer and enjoying life. It's summer, it's sunny, and life has just had to move on. And um, it has been quite staggering to see that for ourselves, this resilience, this need to know we're going to go back to our city. We want to live life um, while the rebuilding and the scars are still so visible and uh, yesterday we were in Chernihiv which is two and a half hours more or less from Kyiv a mere 50 kilometers away from the border with Belarus Um, it was one of the main city the first cities and regions um, when Russian troops entered via Belarus to be targeted Uh, a lot of the villages surrounding Chernihiv were under Russian occupation for uh, a a long time um, and you know, we, we, the city now is uh, thriving uh, because it was one of the first to be under occupation. It was also one of the first to be liberated um, and we met a few soldiers who were on their day off enjoying a day in the sunshine eating ice cream. Um, then you turn a corner and what used to be the football stadium. Um, Of uh, the Desna football club of Chernihiv um, barely exists anymore. We met some entrepreneurs who have a cycling program um, who are distributing bikes to members of like utility companies, the postal service, uh, as a way of them moving around the city to deliver uh, aid and parcels, etc. Because for a long time there was no way to get petrol. So the city learned very quickly um, to. Uh, come back um, in any way it could. And we also visited a school. In this city, there are 34 schools, 27 have been destroyed. Um, and we visited the one of the first ones to be rebuilt and to reopen. Uh, and it happened to coincide with um, their uh, rehearsals. The children re- were rehearsing for um, the Independence Day. Uh, festivities in August and when we arrived we were speaking to the the principal of the school and uh, all these children were just you know dancing and laughing and it's hard not to get um, emotional seeing that thinking that a few a mere few months ago they were hiding for 30 40 days um, in basements in that city or they had been forced to become refugees overnight Mm. and now Mm. they were back in their hometown Um, dancing, playing, playing football, riding on bikes and crying because they fell to the floor, as you should do when you're a child. Carlotta, what's on your
0: agenda for today?
2: So today we are staying here in Kyiv and we have the summit, um, the uh, second ever summit of the first ladies and gentlemen, hosted by First Lady Olena Zelenska, uh, it's on uh, in the afternoon, so we'll be heading there quite soon. Um, and uh, the First Lady is hosting an array of spouses from um, other countries. Um, here, um, we can't disclose yet <laughs> who exactly, but uh, uh, listeners and readers will be able to hear it next week. Uh, but for now, we can't really say uh, who's attending, and um, uh, we are quite keen to, you know, also. Understand a bit more of this of this, the important role that the first lady has played in. Uh keeping the diplomatic channels open. And uh, we saw that she was just in Washington, D.C. a few days ago and um, keeping to spread the word of what's happening in this country. And then we uh, top it all off um, by getting a night train at around 10.30 p.m. to the southwest of the country. We're going to a city called Czernizzi. Um Our journey is going to take 15 hours. So uh, tomorrow on Monocle on Sunday, we will be en route <laughs> when we join uh, the program and uh, we'll be there for our final uh, day and night in uh, Ukraine before, uh, on Monday, uh, crossing to Romania to make our journey back to London.
0: Carlotta, thank you very much indeed. That was Carlotta Ribello speaking to us from Kyiv. This is Monocle on Saturday. to have a closer look at some of the day's main stories now, making the papers with Andrew Walker, who's a journalist and former economics correspondent for the BBC World Service. Good morning to you, Andrew. Morning, Georgina. It's lovely to have you here. I don't think good we've had a conversation in person before. No, so... no,
3: no, that's right, just, just remotely. Um, yeah. so, it's good to be here. Uh,
0: it's the economy stupid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was the uh, campaign phrase used by Bill Clinton to successfully unseat the incumbent US President Bush mm-hmm. in 1992. Well, here in Britain, both people vying for the leadership are relying on that too but from very different points of view and uh, the times today has yeah. a huge uh front page interview uh with rishi sunak who of course is the former chancellor of the yeah. exchequer now one of the leadership hopefuls and he says that there is a huge crisis coming it's the economy it's the nhs it's illegal migration mm-hmm. uh, and he says that he is really going to uh uh put
3: put the country yeah. in, in on a crisis it's, footing indeed it, it is quite striking um I think he has a bit of a problem in that his opponent, Liz Truss, is distancing herself from the economic policies that he pursued, which did lead to significant increases in taxes, which, of course, is is a kind of heretical thing for a Conservative finance minister to do. And she is making a big play of her plans to cut taxes. He feels... Well, first of all, he, he can't really distance himself from his own policies, but he also, um, I think, feels that, that the time is just not not right for it. The British government's finances are facing significant challenges. As a result of all the expenditure that was incurred um, in in responding to the pandemic, um, and um, and also the fact that we've got really persistently rather weak economic growth, which affects the tax side of the, the government finances, so he does have this real challenge. And I mean, I, I, looking at the Times article, I was on the economy side of it in particular. I was slightly scratching my head and thinking, well, what is going to be fundamentally different about it um, compared with what he's done previously? In addition to this this question of government finances and weak economic growth, we have this global inflation problem, which has hit us um, as hard here as it has anywhere else. The most recent figure for the UK was 9%. He, I think, is arguing that Liz Truss's proposals for tax cuts would add to that inflation problem um, and that's one of the reasons he is reluctant to go down that that road but what substantively this laser focus on 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 on, on the economy and the, and the crisis footing um I, it's not a, quite clear to me what that's going to mean in practice. Mm.
0: As you say, this is also a global problem, and the Irish Times is talking Mm -hmm. about the ECB and the difficult position that that's in.
3: Yes, so um, the European Central Bank raised interest rates on Thursday, its first move for many years. Um, The ECB, you may remember, had one of its interest rates below zero for a time. That's no longer the case anymore. Um, But yeah, central banks generally do have this real problem. Um, They... Uh, Their 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 mandate generally is to keep inflation under control, and for the last few decades that seems to have been pretty successful. Suddenly, um, they're facing the combined prospect of um, weak economic performance, which you would normally respond to with lower interest rates, and surging inflation which we would normally respond to with higher interest rates. The difficulty for them is that the the inflation surge is driven to a large extent, perhaps not exclusively, but to a large extent by problem, by disruption to supply, partly as a result of the, um, the, the rather uh, um, uh, confused emergence of the world economy from the pandemic, but also because of the um, severe effect on food and energy supplies as a result of the conflict in Ukraine. So it, the, the Irish Times article is suggesting that the That the ECB, along with other central banks, is kind of currently. Finding itself in the the position of being a rather convenient scapegoat mm-hmm. for, for for governments, um, uh, because central banks are the ones who know, who at least have the responsibility for setting interest rates, and um, and therefore are likely to get quite a lot of the public blame for for the pain that's likely to be associated with slower economic performance, with um, inflation that may come down only slowly, um, and with higher borrowing costs for people buying their homes, running small businesses and so forth.
0: Mm. Speaking of public blame, well, oh, Steve yeah. Bannon. Yes, indeed. Uh, now, we've been reporting in our headlines today that he's been found guilty yeah, of yeah. two counts of contempt of Congress. Uh, the New York Times has naturally a big piece on this. What, what are they
3: saying? Well, it is striking, actually. You know, The last time I did this slot, I um, I, I spoke about um, an indictment against one of the president's former um, former president's advisors. Um, that was Peter Navarro. This time we have the first conviction of um, of someone close to the president um Steve Steve Bannon and yeah uh, he uh, um, he was he didn't actually give evidence in the end that the times was talking about how there was a lot of talk that he would um you know, go all guns blazing, but he didn't, and instead relied on his own lawyers cross-examining the the prosecution. But he has indeed been found um, guilty of contempt of Congress uh, for refusing to comply with a subpoena that the House uh, committee investigating the January the sixth attacks um, issued against him. Um, to be clear, he's not actually convicted of anything directly contributing to those um those um, extremely controversial events but just not doing what um, the court feels he should have been doing to help with the investigation so far what we have is the conviction the verdict um but but no news yet that will come in due course on sentencing but it is certainly the case that prison a prison sentence of up to a year is theoretically possible
0: Mm. isn't it Extraordinary the way that these January the 6th hearings have been done like a television
3: series. And, of course,
0: we've seen the sort of season finale now, haven't we?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, it, it, it's both a political theatre for, the, for, you know, for the the current situation um, that the United States is facing. And I think, and I have no doubt, it feeds into some of the, the big questions that American voters are going to be, be thinking about, um, those who are persuadable. Is President Trump really a suitable person for, for public office? And presumably he's going to attempt to, to run again. Um, and, um, and also a, an, an unlimited mine of material, I think, for historians for, for many years to come. And comedians. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Uh, let's cross to Australia now, where the Greek Archbishop there is suing a blogger. Uh, for defamation,
3: yeah, um, a, a couple of people that that, that he's suing. Um, this is the leader of the Greek Orthodox Church, um, Archbishop Makarios Grinizakis. Um This is over comments by 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 a couple of bloggers about. Um, and, and I think possibly also on some Facebook posts about, uh, particularly about the church's response to um, allegations of um, sexual impropriety against a member of the clergy, also questions about um, about the way in which church money has been spent. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's it it, it the, the, it's not entirely surprising that people make accusations and that um, and that the church authorities will get very upset about it. But what is really striking is um, someone in such a senior position taking, frankly, a very high-powered response to um, people who, according to the Sydney Morning Herald, in one case have a um, annual read a monthly readership of less than two thousand, another with who claims to have a monthly income of. Less than one and a half thousand US dollars. Um, and the Archbishop has engaged the services of an extremely expensive and very high profile um, Australian defamation specialist lawyer. Um, that I think in just in and of itself makes this a, a story that really does make you think, think my goodness, and um, uh, um. Clearly, the Archbishop thinks it's, it, it's something that's worth putting a lot of effort into. Yeah.
0: Uh, finally, let's go to China. And this is a very disturbing story about extinctions of freshwater
3: fish. Yes, the two in particular, two um, fish that were known as the giants of the Yangtze, the Chinese... Um, the Chinese paddlefish, which is an extra, which I say is was an extraordinary-looking creature with an extremely long snout, and the um, and the uh, the uh, Yangtze sturgeon—they're um, both very large fish. I mean, in, particularly in the case of the Chinese paddlefish it's not exactly news i mean i think it was well known that it had almost certainly disappeared but what the south china morning post is reporting is confirmation from the international union for the conservation of of nature that they have um officially declared the the fish to be extinct which is is very sad it's not there is another species of paddlefish in the united states but it's still a very striking um and as you say georgina very sad development Um, the, the, the report is suggesting that a lot of the blame goes to, um, the destruction of habitats, particularly in sensitive developments, uh, and, um, dam developments, in particular, which have made it very much more difficult for these these large fish to move backwards and forwards between feeding and breeding grounds and so forth. Um, and I do fear that it won't be the last time we'll be talking about a story like this.
0: No, absolutely. There's a great book actually, it's called Pod by Laleen Paul mm-hmm. uh, and she's the person that wrote The Bees, which was a yeah. huge bestseller. And it's it's a kind of, um, it's sort of slightly science fiction-y, but mm-hmm. everything is based on fact yeah, yeah. And, and it's about dolphins and just how habitats Are disappearing for these animals. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much. That was Andrew Walker, journalist and former economics correspondent for the BBC World Service. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday.
1: The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs program. We tackle the world's biggest news stories, as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board. Is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the
0: Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at
1: them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time. Right here on Monocle 24
0: You're back with Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and finally on today's programme, our contributing editor Andrew Muller Muller with his take on the week's weirdest stories.
1: We learned this week that the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, heir to an office and an apartment in a somewhat shabby inner-city terrace house, once occupied by Wellington, Disraeli, Lloyd George, Gladstone, Attlee, Churchill, Thatcher and Blair is... Uh. One of these two.
4: We import two-thirds of our cheese. That is a disgrace.
0: I have friends who are aristocrats, I have friends who are upper class, I have friends who are, you know, working class, but
1: I'm not working class. And we will be returning to the motif of ancient video clips, probably not necessarily representative of where the person concerned is now at, being dredged up for the purposes of cheap mockery later in this monologue. Do hang in there. We learned that the end result of the deliberations of the current clack of Conservative MPs is a runoff between Foreign Secretary Liz Truss and very recently former Chancellor Rishi Sunak, from between whom the Prime Minister of a kingdom of 67 million people spread among four nations will now be chosen by the Conservative Party's membership, i.e. 200,000 insane, gout-stricken, retired brigadiers in yellow corduroy trousers and their seething, furious wives, largely clustered within an easy gin pickled stagger of one of maybe four Surrey golf courses. Come on, let's have a golf sound effect. Seriously, it will be a crime, if you will...
4: A disgrace.
1: ...if we don't land at least one of these three things we're up for at the British Podcast Awards this weekend. We further learned that by the best estimations of Britain's bookmakers, the likeliest preference of the Conservative Party's membership of Daily Express reading Dingbats is Liz Truss, who, we learned, before she embarked upon her more recent procession through a series of ideological and literal Margaret Thatcher costumes, had other ideas, including staying in the European Union...
4: But I have great faith in the British people. I think the British people are sensible people. They understand fundamentally that economically, Britain will be better off staying in a reformed EU.
1: And abolishing the monarchy.
4: I agree with Paddy Ashdown when he said, everybody in Britain should have the chance to be a somebody. But only one family can provide the head of state. We liberal Democrats believe in opportunity for all. We believe in fairness and common sense. We believe in referenda on major constitutional issues. We do not believe that people should be born to rule.
1: So we learned, possibly we try to be a credit where due sort of monologue, that perhaps this clearly died in the wool Republican Remainer is on the verge of executing the greatest sleeper operation in history. We learned also... of the ignominy already consuming the current occupant of 10 Downing Street as he begins the doubtless wearisome task of scraping gold wallpaper off the walls and writing enticing gumtree ad copy for hideous sofas which appear to be modelled on test patterns from the earliest days of colour television. For we learned that certain ungrateful citizens of Wiltshire had entered in a local council scarecrow competition, a representation of Boris Johnson, and we learned that there had, as a consequence, been controversy. We learned, as did the Scarecrow's creators, that some petty fogging bylaw prevents any sort of political statement on council property. Ew. And that, as a result, the Boris Johnson Scarecrow had been disqualified. And one supposes we have to do this, let's just get it over with. So now we're left with this absurd, unruly, cartoonish shambles of a figure with mad hair, a vacant grin, and dead eyes that nobody has any further use for, and An unwanted scarecrow in Salisbury. That actually went pretty well, I thought.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Working on a night move.
1: Yes, that's Bob Seger with Night Moves. This choice of music is about to seem very clever. Bear in mind Night Moves and recall that the word night, if spelt slightly differently, can mean something different and may have different connotations in conjunction with the word moves. Night moves. this interesting. Tell me more. Let's see where this goes. Okay. Because, sticking with the subject of people stepping down from exalted positions, we learned that it turns out that there is something actually more impressively badass than successfully defending a world title, and that is choosing not to defend a world title on the grounds that one simply cannot be bothered. We learned this from reigning five-time chess world champion, Knight Moves. Clever, clever. Smart, smart. Very smart. See? Magnus Carlsen, who spoke as follows, as will now be recited by Monocle24's existential ennui desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I simply feel that I don't have a lot to gain. I don't particularly like it, and although I'm sure a match would be interesting for historical reasons and all of that, I don't have any inclinations to play, and I'll simply not play the match. Could it be he's... Bored with Chess. And now, Buffalo Tom. Because in heartwarming animal headlines we learned that the wild bison once again roams this green and pleasant land. We learned that three of these splendid creatures had been turned loose into the Kent countryside, hopefully to begin the task of rebuilding Britain's once mighty population of shambling ruminants. This monologue will of course keep a close eye on their progress. Tune in next week at the same time for another whimsical, sidelong look at the gnus. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much, Andrew, and
0: he'll be back with The Foreign Desk at midday London time. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, our producer, Rhys James, uh, and, of course, to you for listening. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week.